Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We're continuing our series in the tales of the kingdom, and we'll pick back up in Matthew next week, but I want to go to a passage in Luke that is a parable, and we're going to look at the we're going to look at the parable of the rich fool as the headings in our Bibles, which are not inspired, the headings, but which stayed in our Bibles. And so today the title of the message is The Good Life, The Good Life. And we're going to read from Luke 12, verse 13 to 21. Stand with me in the reading of God's holy inspired word. Scripture says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, I went home, as I usually do from church, after preaching the message. And last week's message, we talked about the reality of hell and judgment. And needless to say, as I was sitting there in that afternoon, just kind of processing the message and and uh, just praying and thinking, um, I uh, was on my phone and I thought of a friend of mine who... I attended the master seminary with. We were in the D-Men, the D-Men program together a few years ago. His name was John. And um, we had great fellowship. Dear brother, faithful pastor, just committed to the gospel. And um, man, I just treasured the friendship that I've shared with him. And it was just last year, we we we... We kind of separated ways, not separated ways, but we, we lost contact of each, with each other to, for just a short time uh, because uh, I had to pause the program, and he, of course, went on to finish it. And so last year, we spoke before, just before he began a new ministry in Texas at the same time that I was beginning my ministry here. So I was online, and I was looking him up because my phone number had changed, and I just wanted to see how he was doing. And I learned that on December the 22nd of just this past year, he passed away suddenly of a heart attack at the age of 47. I was stunned, just jolted, just shocked. Of course, my heart is breaking for his family. But then I just began to think of just how real, I mean, just how real that is. I mean, he was 47. 
I just turned 47. We shared that in common. We shared family size and just a whole bunch of things in common, including gospel ministry. I'll say this about my friend John. He was definitely ready, and he loved the Savior that he preached. And so I was listening to sermons that he was finishing. He had preached on December 18th, and then it was on December 22nd that he was in his home, and he suddenly passed. And as I think about him being ready and his love for the Savior that he preached, as I was reflecting on my own heart and life, I want to be ready as well. I want to be resolved like he was. What if today was my last sermon? That's how I want to step into the pulpit every week. What if today was my last sermon? Man, if it is my last sermon, then you know what I need today? I need to be resolved by the grace of God to preach always as if it were my last sermon. But what about you? What about you here today? Do you listen to every sermon like it was your last? What if it was? What if today was the last sermon you ever heard? Richard Baxter, the Puritan who wrote Reformed Pastor, he said this, we are dying men preaching to dying people. And he said to pastors, don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever forget that you are dying men preaching to dying people and that eternity is before all of us. That brings us actually to the very heart of this parable. In this parable, in verse 13, we're, we jump into the middle of Jesus' teaching. He is, he is teaching, he's preaching. And as he's teaching and preaching to this large crowd that has gathered around him, he is confronted with an earthly dilemma. I want you, before we get into the heart of the parable, to consider the earthly dilemma. The text says someone in the crowd, as he's preaching, just like this, as he's preaching, as he's talking about eternal things, someone steps up out of the crowd and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, can you picture this? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, preaching on deeply eternal matters. He just said to the crowd, your every hair on your head is numbered. He just said to the crowd that they should fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell and fear God more than fear man. He just told the crowd about the sin of unbelief. He just pressed upon the crowd the urgency of believing that God the Father had sent Him into the world in order to establish His kingdom. And he just got finished telling the crowd that they needed to consider whether or not they were going to put their faith and trust in him. And then this guy steps forward and says something that's just totally off. I mean, you follow me? I mean, this doesn't make any... I mean, what, what, who's this guy listening to? Is he got, does, does he have AirPods in his ears as Jesus is speaking? And then yanks him out and he walks up and, and, and he, he steps forward and he calls on Jesus to solve an earthly dilemma, an inheritance issue, a dispute between him and his brother. It is obvious that he has ignored Jesus' sermon and it is obvious that he has not recognized who Jesus is. And let me tell you, he's thinking right here, not about eternal things, but he's thinking about earthly things. What are you thinking about right now? 
What are you thinking about right now? Are, are you thinking about lunch? Are you thinking about the issues of this week? Are you thinking about temporary problems going on in your life? Or are you thinking about eternal things? Because this guy wasn't thinking about eternal things. And you know what's interesting is Jesus is not being rude. It's actually kind of rude that the guy did this. But Jesus just simply refuses to answer or to address, to even dive into this. Because here's the reality. Jesus didn't come to solve our temporary problems. He came to offer eternal salvation. That's why he came. He didn't, he, he didn't come to solve our personal injustices or even the world's injustices. He came to provide redemption. And Jesus' response to this man is really in line with his mission. Because in the very, in, in verse 15, you'll see an eternal danger that you need to consider before we get to the parable. Look what Jesus says in verse 14. He says in verse 14, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Basically, what he's saying is he's not being disrespectful. He's just telling that, listen, I'm not here. I didn't come here to solve these kind of issues. And then in the next verse, verse 15, he steps into the eternal. He says, take care. All of you, take care. Watch out. Be on guard. Against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus discerns the man's sin and the eternal danger, not only that he is in, but even the crowd, what they're in, if they're thinking or being consumed by anything other than God's eternal kingdom. That man was obsessed with the inheritance of his father, money. The issue is greed. Some translations will read, be on your guard against all forms of greed. Covetousness is ruthless greed. Write that down. Covetousness is ruthless greed. It is an insatiable desire for something that consumes a person's life. It can be wealth. It can be money. It can be pleasure. It can be sex. It can be, it it, it can be success. It can be work. It can be family. It can be hobbies. I mean, it can be anything that we obsess over and that we think can satisfy us in such a way that really only God can. So this man is Sin is covetousness. And notice what Jesus says. He says, for one's life. The Greek word for life here is the Greek word zoe. That's the Greek word. A man's life. That is his existence in the universe. Right? Why am I here? What is the purpose? What Jesus is getting at is that a man's existence does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, we're not here on this earth to simply accumulate stuff and find enjoyment in it. Because honestly, that's the good life. He says, listen, Zoe, that form of life, is not consumed by the abundance of stuff. Do you know what the Greek word for life would be that would be related to the abundance of stuff? Bios. That's the other Greek word for life. That word just simply means Basically, like life, you know, like the stuff you have, the family you, you, you have in your home, the car you drive. But Jesus doesn't say, he says, listen, life is not about the abundance of the things that we have. 
It's not about the good life. We hear that a lot in our culture. The good life would be a carefree, problem-free life of comfort, pleasure, and wealth. We were not created for that. When Jesus says life does not consist of the abundance of things, what he's getting at is, is that we were made for life with God. And we have been separated from God because of our sin. And the only thing that will solve that separation is being restored into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can fulfill what we are created for. And so then, with this in mind, with this dilemma that he's confronted with, with this eternal danger that he presents, then Jesus, is, he launches into a parable, a tale of the kingdom, to illustrate the point that life doesn't consist of the abundance of things. Our existence in the universe is not about our temporary stuff, inheritance, wealth, pleasure, whatever. And here's the key kingdom truth you need to write down. Forget the good life. Life is short Death and judgment are coming, so be rich toward God. I mean, that's what he's driving at. And you see this, I mean, you see this in the parable. And so Jesus then watches in this parable about a rich guy, and here's what he tells us. He tells us about a rich man, what he imagined, what he intended, and what he ignored. Those three things. And so I want us right now to take the rest of the time we have together in light of this scenario, the earthly dilemma, and the principle of eternal danger that Jesus presented, this man and that crowd, and I want us to think about this rich man in the parable, what he imagined, what he intended, and what he ignored. Let's look at first what he imagined. Look at verse 16. And he told them a parable. So rather than just rebuke this guy in front of these people, he tells a story that not only captures the heart of what, not only reveals the heart of this guy, but he also reveals what might be in the heart of the people. And so the first thing you see is what he imagined. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought, hear that? He imagined to himself. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, I want you to see two things that he imagined. First, here's what we see. The source of his prosperity. You see it in verse 16? The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself. So the man is wealthy. He owns property that produces a lot. It has become the source of all of his wealth. But seemingly the man does not consider why he has wealth. His thoughts are directed where? Inwardly, not upwardly. Do you see it? His thoughts are inward thoughts, not upward thoughts. There are no thoughts of God and there is no thankfulness toward God. No thoughts of God, no thankfulness toward God. And his thoughts reveal that he considers himself the source of his prosperity, not God. He's a practical atheist. He, he's, not a, he's not a belligerent atheist. He's not going to make an argument that there is no God. He is just going to live as if there is no God. I mean, maybe if he was giving a speech to receive Academy Award or a Grammy, he might say, and finally, I'd just like to thank God for everything he's done. Uh, and, and obviously, that's all nonsense and insincere. 
This man has no thoughts of God. And listen, he did not consider what Proverbs says in Proverbs 10. The blessing of the Lord, the the blessing of the Lord makes rich. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. That's the stronghold of his life. And he never considers that the blessing of the Lord is what makes one rich. In other words, folks, there are no self-made people. Paul tells the people on Mars Hill in Athens that it is the God who made the world and everything in it who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so what that means for you and me, including the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, is that anything we have or enjoy, we have received from God. We can't even think. We can't even breathe. We can't even do anything if it were not for God. And so... The man asks in his mind, what does he say? What shall I do? Not whom shall I thank. See it? He doesn't say what shall I, he doesn't say whom shall I thank. He says whom, what shall I do? He sees himself as the one that should be congratulated. And that pride is in every single one of us. Turning our hearts away from God to look at ourself as the source of our prosperity and the source of everything. But not only do you see the source of his prosperity, you see the self-centeredness of his plan. Again, look at the text. The text says in verse 16, the land, he said in verse 17, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. His wealth is unquestionable. His success is established. And in the end, he says, look at this situation I'm in. There's no room to store my produce, my crops. And we know that he's self-centered. Do you know why? Because his plan is about storage, not stewardship. You should note that. His plan is about storage, not stewardship. His plan is about how much can I make? How much can I get? How much can I accomplish? Not, God, thank you for what I do have. How can I use it for your kingdom and for your glory? Because in the end, none of it matters. Only you matter. See, it's not about stewardship. It's about storage. And I fear for many of us, our life is about storage not stewardship. The concern that I have is that we're living our whole lives chasing some illusion that's not real only to get to the end of it and realize that the kingdom and the castles that we have built have really been all designed out of sand because in the end, it just falls right through our fingers. It's self-centered. It never crosses the man's mind that there could be another purpose for his wealth. Maybe instead of barns, benevolence should be in his consideration. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Listen, this Jesus is speaking to a crowd who is really, and to a specific man who his entire focus is himself. His whole life has been defined by making and storing. The problem is not the, that the man possessed wealth. Hear me. 
The problem is not that the man possessed wealth, but that wealth possessed him. That's the key. That's the tragedy of sin. Is that we can even take a good thing and then we can make it an idol. And then that idol becomes the very thing that we define our lives by and we bow down and we worship it. And so, his wealth is the food that perishes. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Jesus says, but labor for the food that endures to eternal life. That in the way we live, in the way that we conduct ourselves, in the values that we have as believers in Christ, that it is clear that God in Christ is our treasure and none of this earthly passing stuff. The man's imagination revealed what he was living for. And that leads us to this kingdom question. What are you living for? What am I living for? Am I living for the food that does not perish? Or am I living for the food that does perish? And I, am I obsessing and worrying and, and, and defining my whole life by simple worldly pursuits? Or has the gospel transformed that? So that Christ is seen as the treasure. Because see, what the man imagined reveals what he's living for And again, what are you living for today? But that leads to a second observation, what he intended. Look at verse 18. Look at the text. I mean, this is really important. Underline how many times you see I and my. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now before we unpack his his intentions, I, I want you to see six eyes. Do you see it? Six eyes and four mys. It is delusional. He is think this man in the parable is absolutely delusional. And here's what's got him deceived, the word my. You want to know how I know that we're all born sinners? Because usually the first word that any of us learned when we were kids, and anybody here as a parent knows this is the truth, is mine. Mine. And then you're saying, no, not yours. It's actually mine. No, I'm kidding. But it's really, we're constantly reminding them. You know, C.S. Lewis in his work, Screwtape Letters, picks up on this. Screwtape's Letters is basically the letters of a senior devil writing to his, his soldier minion demons. And he's telling these younger demons how to deceive human beings. And in the 21st letter of the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis in fictionally captures this idea of how the devil uses that possessive pronoun my and mine to deceive us. Here's what he writes. The humans are all, this is a, like a devil, fictional here, okay, just fictional. This is a devil writing to a, a, a lower level devil, demon. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell. We must keep them doing so. It's like a, and he says, it's like a royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake in command of some great province 
under the real rule of wise counselors, should come to fancy that he really owns the cities, the forests, and the corn in the way as he owns the bricks on the nursery floor. In other words, it's like a prince who thinks that all the kingdoms and forests of his father actually is. No, they're not. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. We cannot use the word my and mine and actually think that that's sincere. It's a joke, he says. It cannot be uttered by any human being about anything. They will find out. Human beings will find out in the end. Never fear. To whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. And what do you hear today? It's my rights. It's my body. It's my time. It's my this. It's my that. We worship the God of self-autonomy. And you know what? It's all delusional. It's all delusional. And you know how we know that? Because when we are on our deathbeds, there will be nothing that we will be clinging to. Because Paul had it right. We came into this world with nothing, and we will what? We will leave this world with nothing. And so, and so look at the man's delusional intentions. Three things he intended to build. He intended to tear down his barns and build bigger and better. Look at what his greed is doing to him. His greed, his covetousness is overtaking him. It's overwhelming him. And there's a sense where he is never satisfied. He is never content. And he's always busy building a kingdom that will not last. Do you see it? He says it. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And how many people do we know? that are driven by the desire and want for more, more pleasure, more houses, more cars, more comforts in a world where time is temporary and death is certain. When I was in South Dakota a few years ago, we went to one of those mining camps for kids. And so where they, you know, they sift through and they get these little particles of gold and then you, we went to this mine tour and I was struck because the original owner of this mine in the 1830s when he, he was in the creek that ran right, right below the hill and he found those little particles of gold. So he bought the hillside and he started mining. He spent 35 years all the way to his death digging deeper and deeper and deeper into that hillside. And I asked the person, the tour guide, I said, well, how much did he end up accumulating after all of his life spent mining? And he said, equivalent of $200. $200. And by the time he accumulated the $200, time was up. <laughs> I mean, do we see this? He intended to build. This man intended to build, but he also intended to bank. Look at what it says. He says again, he says, I will tear down my barns and then I will store. I will bank all my grain and my goods. He would store his crops and bank them for a greater profit in the future. And I want you to pay close attention to what Jesus is driving at. Do you see? He, what he's showing us is, is that you are now getting the idea of where this man's confidence and hope lies. Notice what it says. My grain, my goods. I'm going to bank my grain and my goods. Nothing about my God. Nothing about my God. 
His security is in earthly things. But the truth is, is that there is no security in earthly things. There's nothing wrong with having a 401k and and having a plan for the future and a savings account and having worldly possessions. But in the end, we must keep in mind what does Proverbs say? Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And so, again, Paul's warning to Timothy in chapter 6 about the dangers of riches where he says it is the love of money, the covetousness of money, the, the ruthless greed for money, that what? It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not the money, it's not the wealth, but it's the sinful covetousness for more that overwhelms us and makes us believe that there is no room for anything, not even God. So he intended to build, he intended to bank, but the last thing you see in the verse In verse 18, verse 19, I mean, is he intended to bask. Look at at what it says. He said, I will do this. Uh, Verse 19, and I will say to my soul. Oh, wow, now we're spiritualizing it. Spiritualize. And now I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But you know, even as he speaks to his soul, do you know who the savior of his soul is? Himself. And do you know what his security is in? The things that he's worked for. That's what it is. And so the words are telling, I will say to my soul, and it is here that in the Greek, the word for, instead of using the word Zoe, we have the word psyche. Which refers to who we are. The core of us. The core of our being. The eternal reality of ourselves. We should be heartbroken for this. At the very core of his eternal soul is something that will not save and will not last. The soul is our eternal person. And it shows his blindness as he spiritualizes his materialism. You have, listen, look what he says. You have ample goods. What? Ample goods, soul. Soul, look to your goods. All of his security is in his wealth and his earthly possessions. It defines him. And let me tell you, that's common today. At the heart of the prosperity gospel is this idea where we spiritualize wealth and we, are, we believe or we hear from the prosperity preachers that our spirituality or a sign of spiritual health is that we have lots of money and we have good health. Let, let me tell you. The reality is that is one of the greatest lies of the devil today. The idea that financial success, material possessions, and earthly comfort are signs of God's blessing and spiritual health? Absolutely not. I am not saying that we do not give God thanks for everything we enjoy, even the temporary things. Absolutely. But the temporary blessings that I receive are not God's way of demonstrating that I'm spiritually right for him. In fact, that can be deceiving as it was for this guy. I'm okay. I don't have any problems. Everything is going well. But the reality is, as you're going to see in a second, he's missing a few things. But, but I guess what I would say about, about his basking is that he has a short-sighted assumption. Look what he says. 
He, I, read, read it with me. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for how long? Many years. See how short-sighted he is? It is a short-sighted assumption. Make sure you note that. He assumes he will not die. He assumes he will have many years. What you want to say is, is what about eternity? Who cares about many years? He assumes he will not die. I have seen it repeatedly through the years. Men and women who will live their whole existence building up and looking toward that retirement. Only upon retire, upon the moment they retire, something happens and they die within three months. Perspective. You know, in World War II, the armed forces concluded that 18-year-olds, listen young people, 18-year-olds were the best pilots. So they appealed to 18-year-olds to become fighter pilots. You know why? And, and this is in record. They're better targets to get to be fighter pilots than 22-year-olds because 18-year-olds were sure they would live forever. Right? You're young. You have all this energy. You don't think about the reality of eternity. And, what the, and in this man's case, what it leads to is it leads to not, his, his short-sighted assumption leads to a hedonistic presumption. Look at it. Short-sighted assumption. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Look at his presumption. Just relax. The good life. Sit back. Enjoy. And so, again, the problem is not enjoying the good things of life. But what he does is almost like Esau and Jacob. A moment of pleasure is traded for an eternity of suffering. And here's the thing. He intended to build. He intended to bank. And he intended to bask. But never once did he consider what James says in James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? What is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so this man's intentions leads us to this kingdom question. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Your money, your stuff, your success, your youth? Are you assuming that you have many years and you may not even have the next six hours? And so notice how we move from what he imagined to what he intended to what he ignored. Look what he ignored. This is what ought to cause all of us to be jolted like I was yet last Sunday. But God said to him, enough of listening to him speak to himself. Hear me, enough of us speaking to ourselves. Enough of listening to what the world will put before us. And God said to him, fool, which is ignorant. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The conclusion of the parable reveals the man's eternal miscalculation. Oh, that none of us this morning would miscalculate the importance of what you're hearing this morning. Not because it's me. Forget me. It is the truth of the word of God. You know what this man ignored? Three things. He ignored accountability. That's the first thing he ignored. 
Not once did the man consider that God would have the final word. He kept listening to his own head. He kept listening to everything else except God. And God had the final word, and it's full. Aphron, which means ignorant. He was ignorant because he chose the good life over a life devoted to God. And in pride, he not once acknowledged God. You're listening? He not once thanked God. And he not once did he bow his knee in service to God. He lived for himself. His atheism was subtle, not severe. It blinded him to his accountability before God. You know what the man said to himself? Relax. You know what God said to him? Required. Relax. You got your whole life ahead of you. Relax. You've got tomorrow. And God said, no, tonight your soul is required. Amos chapter 4, the prophet says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares a man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name, and you must be prepared to meet him. Are you prepared this morning to meet him? The writer of Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now, if you know Jesus Christ, the fear is taken away. But if you do not have the assurance of salvation, if you cannot say that Jesus is your king and that he is your savior, then it will be a fearful thing if God would to require your soul before the end of this day. And what should be sobering for all of us is the fact that we are all accountable to God. This guy thought he was only accountable to himself. And one of the heartbreaks of the modern person is the denial of the reality that we are not autonomous. We are accountable to the God who created us. But he also ignored his appointment with death. See it? This night, you're going to die. And you're going to stand before me. Jesus did not say tomorrow... He didn't say that God said tomorrow or the next day or 10 years or 50 years. He said, this night you will die and you will stand before me. Again, where is the man's autonomy? Where's the man's control? What, what, what do we think? That we think that we're in control of our lives. That we really, self-determination and self-reliance, which has been the modern message that underpins education and modern philosophy and everything. It's all nonsense and lies from the devil. We're not in control of anything. It is appointed unto men once to die. The scripture says that our days are numbered. God has numbered our days. He has appointed the day of our death. You know what J.C. Ryle said in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, which I recommend to every person to read? You know what he said to young men? Because young men tend to just kind of just be stubborn. He said this. He said, young men, your time is short. Your days are but a span long. A shadow, a vapor, a tale that soon is told. Your bodies are not brass. Your health may be taken from you in a moment. There is but a step between any of you and death. You are fast going the way of all the earth. You will soon be gone. Your life is all uncertainty. Your death and judgment are perfectly sure. You believe that? It's true today. If it's true, and it is, then it means that today is the day of salvation. 
I would urge any of you that have no assurance of salvation, do not delay your repentance. Do not presume that you can turn to God when you want to. Right now, the gate is open. Right now, his voice declares that today is the day of salvation. And the reason why you should never delay any decision, any movement towards the truth of God is because in one split second, we are all away from eternity. We may not be on earth tonight. We may not be here next Sunday. And it may just be one heart attack, one cancer prognosis, one car accident, one tragedy, one calamity that will usher us out of this life and into the presence of God. And there could be nothing more than to be ready for it. He ignored his appointment with death. But he ignored, lastly, the answer for sin. Look what it says. But God said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Do you hear what he's saying? Whose will they be? What Jesus is saying is, is that God says to this man, your stuff can't save you now. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All the wealth and property that you have, this is what God says, everything you've accumulated in those barns, all the comfort and pleasure you've enjoyed, you won't even get to enjoy it. All the fun you had, all the memories you made, all the investment and stock returns you earned, and all the inheritance, remember the man that came to Jesus? All the inheritance that you received, what good is any of it now. None of it matters. Wow. Now, if you're that guy that came to Jesus, I got a feeling his mouth is like gaped open and he is absolutely stunned. What good is your inheritance? That's what he's saying to this guy. It's the same thing he says in Matthew, for what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so here's this audience, here's this man. Look at what he's been ignoring. Who's speaking? Catch this, you got to get this. Right in front of him is the Son of God with the offer of salvation, with the hope of eternity, with the meaning of existence, with the most satisfying treasure of the universe, himself. He is the answer to everything. And this guy in the crowd is worried about the inheritance of his dead father. I mean, what is that? Does it even compare? It's nothing. Right in front of him is salvation. The treasuring of Christ. And so the answer to sin is to treasure Christ. To embrace him. And he will satisfy the soul. Oh, that any of, all that all of us would understand that Christ indeed is the true treasure. And that's why Jesus says in the very last, look what he says. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. If you're living for yourself, if you're living for your stuff, if you think the existence, your existence, is all about the pleasure you have and the treasures you accumulate, you're missing it. You'll never be satisfied until you're rich toward God. And to be rich toward God is to embrace Christ. And so it leads to this kingdom question, what will happen to you when you die and stand before God? What will you serve yourself or will you be rich toward God? Will you today say, I'm done living for me. I'm done putting all my security 
in these temporary sins that are destroying my soul. I'm done living my life thinking that life is all about just accumulating stuff that's going to pass away. And I want to give my whole self entirely devoted to Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer today, I call you to call upon the Lord and to commit yourself to Jesus Christ who died and was raised from the dead to save you. And Christian, may all of us fall to our knees and say, God, may you just through this message remind us that we need to be living urgently for eternity. What does it mean to be rich toward God? It's a good question. Well, remember what I said in the beginning? The big idea here is this, forget the good life. Death and judgment are coming. So enter the kingdom, friend, and embrace the king. Forget the good life and embrace a life defined by King Jesus. Don't let your selfishness and your sin keep you from hearing the truth. Right now, right now, ask yourself, what do I treasure? I wept last Sunday because I'll have to wait till I get to heaven to see my friend and my brother. But I'm glad if that he was any fool, he was a fool for Christ. Because he is no fool who gives out that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott. And so today, I call upon you, if you want to be rich toward God, repent of living for yourself and the things of this world. Repent today. God, forgive me. I want to turn from this because I see that Jesus is the immeasurable treasure. I want to embrace Him in salvation. I want to know, have the joy of knowing that my sins are forgiven and I want to love Him and live my life for Christ. That's being rich toward God. Because only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. I'll leave you with one more quote from J.C. Ryle and then I'll pray and then we'll sing. And if you're here today and you need to come forward and you need to call on the Lord to save you, you need, I'll be happy to pray with you, talk with you, help you in any way to have assurance of salvation or maybe you just need to come forward this morning and pray this altar and say, God, help me to be living every day for those things that are eternal. Not the good life, but the life that pleases you. Here's what J.C. Ryle said. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Happy is that man who does not leave these things uncertain. But never rest till he has the witness of the Spirit within him and that he is a child of God. Don't let this day close until you have done business with the living God who has spoken to you through his word. Let's stand. Father, thank you for your word. And God, even now, I pray that you do the work in my heart and the heart of every person here to realize how so easy it is for us to get lost in the earthly things and to not be focused on the eternal. Help every believer in here to know we need to treasure Christ more, to live for him more. 
as we see that day that will soon dawn when we will leave this world. And for the person, whether they're young or they're old or they're in between, if they do not have the assurance of salvation, may this be the day they enter the kingdom and they call upon the king to save them, trusting that he died on that cross for them and that he was raised from the dead. Holy Spirit, do your work in the hearts of every person this morning. Help us to respond in the way that you would have us. In Jesus' name, amen.